The children will remain with us this Sunday because it is Move Up Sunday, and we will talk more about that in a few moments. But in the meantime, I want to invite you to find 1 Corinthians in your Bibles. The sermon today will be back in 1 Corinthians. We've been working our way through 1 Corinthians in the summers for quite some time, and we're in chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. While you're finding it, I want to let you know that every time I wash one of our cars, my cat, Peanut, immediately jumps on top of it. Now, I know that doesn't seem pertinent probably to you, but it's a literal fact. Meredith can, can corroborate every time we wash the car, especially the white car, as soon as I'm done, I've got the hose all coiled back up, the soapy uh, stuff sprayed off and put away, the bucket drying out. I turn around, a peanut standing on the hood of the car just looking at me. <laughs> and it makes you wonder, why even bother? Why even bother to wash the car when immediately after, your work's going to be undone and there's going to be red mud paw prints on the hood and up the windshield? Have you ever asked yourself that same question, why do I even bother? Sometimes you may have felt that in the morning, you get out of bed and the bed's a rumpled, crumpled mess, and you say, well, why bother making it? I'm not going to be back in this room again until tonight when I'm going to unmake it and go to bed and the work will be undone. Why even bother? It's a common question for us to ask. We live in a world plagued with futility. Often our efforts are undone. And sometimes the, this question of why bother can take deeper roots, though, and people can become hopeless as they think about their life and the struggle of it, and especially the ending of it, the fact that it is going to end, that we are going to die. And people can start to ask, why bother? Now, if death is a period at the end of the sentence of your life, if it is the final Note, the end. Truly, what would be the meaning or value of any human pursuit? If there is no resurrection, which is what we as Christians believe, is what the Bible teaches, if there is no resurrection, what would be the point of all this effort and all this striving in our lives as human beings? If there's no foundational reason to think that this matters, we quickly lose all motivation. And many people have lost all motivation and lost hope living in a worldview where this is all there is. Many have been driven to the point of even taking their own lives of suicide. They were just driven so mad by the seeming hopelessness of it all. Our passage today, which is 1 Corinthians 15, verses 29 through 34, argues that if there is no resurrection, if Jesus is not going to return and raise his people from the graves to live in eternity with God and his kingdom, then it's true that there is no meaning or value to our efforts as humans. Now, thankfully, we know as Christians that it is true and that there is meaning and value to our lives. But let's look at Paul's argument. He makes two points in this paragraph that we're going to look at. The first is, if there was no resurrection, rituals for the dead would be meaningless. The second point he's going to make is, 
if there is no resurrection, risks for ministry would be worthless. So let's look at the first point in verse 29. Rituals for the dead would be meaningless if there is no resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29. He's just argued for the fact that the resurrection is the true hope for Christians. In verse 29, he says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? And if the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, what is he talking about? Being baptized on behalf of the dead. If you are at a loss, don't feel alone, nobody quite understands what he's talking about. There is no practice of being baptized vicariously on behalf of the dead in the Christian tradition. It's not in Scripture. It's not endorsed anywhere in the Bible. One of the commentaries I consulted getting ready for this Sunday said that he has come across over 40 possible explanations that people have come up with for what was going on that he's referring to. I'm not going to list out all 40. The, the easiest one, the one that fits best just with a casual reading, it seems like the Corinthian Christians perhaps were baptizing people on behalf of others who had died. Maybe they had adopted some tradition from some pagan practices where if somebody they cared about died and had not been baptized as a Christian, maybe they thought, well, I'll be baptized for them. Paul just doesn't elaborate. We really don't know for sure. But ultimately, that's okay, I think, because his point isn't you should or should not be baptizing on behalf of the dead. I think the rest of Scripture would tell us you shouldn't do that. His point is the Corinthians were rejecting the idea of resurrection, and yet they had some sort of ritual in place, some sort of hopeful ritual for those who had already died. So what he's trying to do is point out to them there's an inconsistency between what you claim to believe and what you actually practice related to when people die. You claim that you don't think there's a resurrection from the dead, and yet you're doing this this hopeful ritual for people who are dead, and that doesn't make any sense. He's pointing out that if, if it's true that there's no resurrection, why would you do anything hopeful in relation to those who have died? And in my experience of performing a lot of funerals, if you remember when I first came to be your pastor, there were a lot of funerals, and I've officiated many. There's a sort of a continuum of people's approaches to their funerals or the funerals of their loved ones. On one end of the spectrum, there are the people that want to emphasize a celebration of the person's life. That's their main concern. I want to celebrate their life. And on the other end, there's those that want to celebrate their, the hope that they have that these people will be raised to eternal life with God. Now, I think both of these are appropriate, but non-Christians tend to be completely on this end of the spectrum. They don't want to talk about what's next. They just want to celebrate the person's life because ultimately they don't have any hope for what's next. And the closer someone is to Christ, the closer they are to this side of the spectrum. Yes, they're grateful for the life and they want to celebrate that, but they really want to hold up the hope that we have as Christians of eternal life with God and resurrection. I read about the funeral of a man named Christopher Hitchens. I don't know if you've heard of Christopher Hitchens, but he is a famous atheist. Actually, he would refer to himself not as an atheist, but an anti-theist. He thought that uh, theistic worldviews were actually damaging 
to humanity, and he worked actively against them. Now, I was curious how his funeral was handled, because he did not believe in resurrection. And so here's what you would have experienced if you had gone to anti-theist Christopher Hitchens' funeral. You would not have approached and entered a church building. You would have entered a school building. It was a liberal arts college where they held the funeral. Um, You would not have heard religious songs being played or sung. You would have heard Bob Dylan songs. You would have heard uh, Christopher Hitchens' favorite music played. And you would not have heard readings from Scripture. You would have heard readings from Christopher Hitchens' books that he authored. Because what they did was all they could do was just celebrate him and his life and be sad together that he was now dead. There, there was no room for hope beyond that. And that is the only consistent way to approach a funeral if you do not believe in the resurrection. The only reason for hope after death is the resurrection. So a good question for us. Let's think ahead, hopefully years from now, Lord willing, to our funerals. What do we want to have emphasized? Just a celebration of our life? Or above and beyond that, a celebration of our future hope of resurrection? The passage I always begin with when I do officiate a funeral is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 and 14. It says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do, who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. That's our hope. So the resurrection gives room for meaningful rituals for those who have died. Christian funerals are extremely meaningful, powerful times. Now, the resurrection doesn't just have implications for the dead, though. It has implications for the living also, and that's Paul's second point. Risks for ministry would be worthless if there was no resurrection. Let's go through this, starting at verse 30. Paul started his argument saying, think about yourselves. Your own practices are inconsistent with the belief that there's no resurrection. In verse 30, he shifts the spotlight to himself. Think about me and my life and my ministry. It wouldn't make any sense if there was no resurrection. Verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Paul's saying if there's no resurrection, danger would be worthless. You you would not put yourself in any danger for the cause of Jesus Christ if there was only benefit to being a Christian in this world only. You know, I um, was approaching this passage to preach to you after having what I consider to be kind of a tough week. And for me, this tough week consisted of a series of kind of difficult conversations I had to have with people. Every single one of them, as it turns out, went fine. But whenever I approach a difficult conversation, I tend to get all knotted up and tense and this can be very stressful. And so I actually was approaching this text thinking I had had a hard week. But listen to what Paul's ministry looked like from 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a classic passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 Paul's arguing for his credibility as a minister in comparison to some other people. And he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. 
with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift on the sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." Now, in comparison with that, I had a great week. I had a really good week. Zero beatings. Zero hunger. Really, zero danger whatsoever. Paul, on the other hand, was willing to subject subject himself to all of this. Why? Why would anybody willingly subject themselves to this kind of life for the sake of ministry? was because he believed in the resurrection. This was all pointing forward to something. But he goes on back in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 30, he said, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 31, he continues, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. Now that's a poetic phrase, I die every day. And what he's saying is, I give myself up I sacrifice myself every day, in large part for you, Corinthians. If the resurrection were not true, self-sacrifice for the sake of ministry would be worthless. Paul would not do this. On his daily calendar checklist, on the very top of it, he would write in parentheses, die to self. Every day he lived self-sacrificially for the sake of the ministry. Now, you might be thinking, well, yeah, he's an apostle, so that's his job, but I'm just a regular Christian. Well, not so fast. Remember Jesus' teaching about what it means to be a Christian at all? Look with me back at Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 24. Matthew 16, 24. Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So this is the calling for every Christian. Self-sacrifice. Why would anybody sign up for this? What makes this worth it? Let's look at his final point back in 1 Corinthians 15. The beginning of verse 32. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, 
I fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, this is gladiatorial language. It pictures him like in the arena fighting actual beasts, but which he never did. He was a Roman citizen, so he wouldn't have been subjected to that, most likely. It's more likely he's referring to struggles that he had with people in Ephesus. He had great, deep, difficult struggles with people in his ministry at Ephesus. And his point is, struggling for the ministry would be worthless if there's no resurrection. I think it's the struggle he refers to in 2 Corinthians 1.8, which is quick, and I'll just read it to you. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, which is probably referring to his time in Ephesus. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So he had a hard time in his ministry. And here the Corinthians were rejecting and denying the idea of resurrection. And he's saying, if there's no resurrection, why would I be doing any of this? Why would any Christian minister subject themselves to danger, self-sacrifice, or struggle? As I was reading this, I kept thinking to Paul's language about ministry, which we are all called into. When you're a Christian, you're a minister. And often, one of his favorite metaphors for the Christian life is a race. Have any of you ever run in a race of any type? Okay. Not very many. You've heard of it. He often refers to the Christian life as a race. I was going to read these passages, but I'm not going to read them. I'm going to tell you what they are, and I want you to read them this week. Go read 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Philippians 3, 8 through 14. Philippians 3, 8 through 14. And Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. If you're not in any kind of Bible reading plan right now, just make these three passages your meditation this week. Each of them describes the Christian life like a race. In a race, you're aiming for the finish line. For the Christian, the resurrection is the finish line. I've told you guys before, this is my one illustration related to these things, about the cross-country race in high school where I came in last of all the guys and the girls at McAlpine Park. And I came in last of everybody because I got lost. I stopped to tie my shoe, and the pack of people that I was running with had moved on, and so I just got up and started running. And next thing I knew, the trail was kind of overgrown, and then there was a family in front of me having a picnic, and I asked, I said, is this the cross-country trail? And they said, well, we don't know. I said, well, have you seen others running by you? They said, no. And so I had to backtrack, figure out the trail. It was, it was awful. Now, wouldn't it have been sillier, though, for me to sit down and enjoy a picnic with that family? You might think, no, that probably would have been better. But no, I was running a race, and that picnic, as delicious as it may have looked, that was not the finish line. I had to run the race and get to the finish line. 
Paul's deeper argument here is what he picks up at the second half of verse 32. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's a phrase found in the book of Isaiah, but also it's just a common phrase for, let's just live it up now. You only live once. If the dead are not raised, really, that's the best we have in this life. Let's eat and drink, for tomorrow we die, and all of our work will be undone, and we'll come to nothing. For me, I would have just said, well, I'm just going to sit down with this family and eat with them and drink with them because I'm not going to win the race anyway. He goes on into verse 33, do not be deceived. That word deceived there could also be translated seduced. Don't be deceived. Don't be seduced. Bad company ruins good morals. Sounds like they were hanging out with people that were leading them to believe that the highest good they could attain in life was the physical pleasures of today and now. They were falling for the lie of our enemy, and they were stopping at false finish lines, and they were forgetting about the true end goal of this Christian race, which is to get to the resurrection. It's the same danger that we face. We might feel that our finish line is retirement. If I could just make it to retirement, then I will have heaven on earth I will be able to retreat to a cabin in the mountains, never talk to another person again, never fill out another form again, never answer the phone again. I will have made it. But no, that is not the finish line. Now, retirement could be great, but it's just a tool in our hands for the kingdom. It's an influx of time and availability to use for kingdom purposes. Don't sit down and have a picnic at retirement. You're not done yet. For others, it might be when the kids are finally grown and gone to school, then I will have heaven on earth. I can pursue my hobbies like I want to. I can do what I want to. No, that's not the finish line. It's a a mirage. It's the wrong finish line. Once I hit this savings goal, or maybe it's just more immediate, once I get to the weekend, we have work to do. Kingdom work, eternally significant work, because the resurrection is real. Now, you might be asking yourself, and one brief aside here, does that mean we can't enjoy anything? Is Matt saying we just have to be miserable all the time, in danger all the time, struggling all the time, self-sacrificing all the time? Well, this is a question I was asking myself yesterday morning, sitting in an Adirondack chair. It felt like fall outside with a hot cup of coffee, Peace and quiet, just this like bird song is all, all you heard. Lillian sitting beside me reading a book is peaceful, wonderful. That's like my favorite situation to be in, sitting quietly in the morning with a cup of coffee. Now, I was thinking through this, should I right now be putting myself in danger instead of sitting here enjoying this cup of coffee? Is this wrong to enjoy this? Should I dump this coffee so I can be self-sacrificing right now? Should I be struggling in some way right now? Well, here's the crucial distinction I think that's important for us to keep in mind. There is a place for enjoying God's blessings and even resting. But that's not the pure goal of our life right now. We are running a race. So if you're resting for the race, then that's good. 
But if you're trying to escape from the race, that's bad. And that's a distinction that I have to keep in mind because sometimes I just want to escape from the race. Ministry propels us to do uncomfortable things. Sometimes it seems like it would just be easier to escape and stop and live like the world. Don't be deceived. Don't be seduced. Now, you can rest from the race. I hope you have a restful Sunday. I hope you go home and take a nap and enjoy it and don't feel guilty about it. But remember, you're recharging and resting so that you can lace up your shoes again and get back to work. And when Jesus comes, the race will be finished. You'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Now, what are we supposed to do with this? Verse 34, the final verse. We'll close on this note before we recognize those who are moving up to new age levels in the church. He says, wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So he gets real practical here at the end, if if confrontational. He says to the Corinthians, wake up from your drunken stupor. You're, you're living like drunkards in a stupor. You're not thinking clearly about your life. Now, how have we succumbed to the drunken stupor of our age and begun to live like the world as if the resurrection isn't true? Then he says, do not go on sinning. How have we allowed sin to become a practice in our life that we've embraced? What sins do we need to repent of so that we can run the race? And finally, for some have no knowledge of God, and I say this to your shame. Ultimately, if we have no taste for the race, we have to ask ourselves, do we know God at all? If we have no desire for things that are greater than our personal safety and comfort, we have to ask ourselves the question, do we know God at all? Because he is a greater good than our personal safety and comfort. It's worth running. And that's what this church is meant to be, is us running together, encouraging each other together to run the race, to run with endurance the race set before us. Now, let's pray together, ask God to work these truths into our hearts, and then we'll take a few moments to recognize those who are moving forward in their ages. Would you bow with me? Father, thank you for this passage, but thank you for the glorious reality that lies behind it in resurrection. Please help us to live in light of the resurrection. Please make us wise about when we should Embrace danger and when we should be grateful for our safety. When we should embrace self-sacrifice and when we need to rest. When we should enter the struggle and when we should wait and pray. We need wisdom for these things. But above all, help us not to live just like those in this world who have no hope beyond this life. Help us not to build all our hopes and dreams around our personal safety and comfort here and now. It is difficult for us, and you know that all too well. Thank you for your mercy and grace through Jesus Christ for when we fail in these things. Thank you for your forgiveness, your patience, your love. You are very good, and we are grateful in Jesus' name. 
Amen.